Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the fifth episode of the Clarineat.com podcast. We made it through the first month. We've got uh, another great month lined up here with some really amazing guests. I'm still working out the kinks with some of the interview schedules, so I'm not going to announce them just yet, but I assure you we've got some great people to talk to again. Um, Today we have Laurie Friedman, who is a Montreal-based performer, composer, collaborator, teacher, writer, and improviser. In her own words, she feels that in a way she's a musician of many hats, but in the interview, actually, she sort of says uh, she agrees that she may just be under one big hat, and that hat just happens to be her life. She has been called a musical revolutionary in the front ranks of the avant-garde and the best thing that ever happened to new music. She's about to embark on the second city of her Virtuosity of Excess tour, um, which she'll be bringing to Calgary, actually. I'm really excited to have the chance to meet her in person while she's here. And she shares her thoughts on the tour, musical performance, teaching, improvising, and much, much more in this really fantastic interview. Now, we also discuss the aesthetics of style, um, of this style of music, and it really is something that has to be heard to be explained. As such, I wanted to play a short clip before we start, but I just want to warn you that it may not be quite what you're expecting if you're not familiar with this kind of music. Um, however, I strongly urge you to stick around for the rest of the interview, no matter what you think, no matter what your gut reaction is. Um, as she says herself, if people feel any sort of emotion or even if it's revulsion um, to this kind of music, that's that's really fantastic, and, and that's the point. Um, furthermore, she'd love to sit down with people of this kind to talk and, and discuss music really the most. So please give it your um, your free thought. And uh, this is an improvisation that she is uh, featuring on her website about the Virtuosity of Excess tour. So there's the clip. I just want you to keep that in mind as we discuss some of the improvisation and uh, the visceral reactions people might have to this type of music. And uh, just sort of keep that in your, in your back pocket as we discuss this stuff. So hope you enjoy the interview. And uh, without further ado, here's Laurie Friedman. Hi, Laurie, and welcome to the Clarinet.com podcast. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today on the show. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for calling. So you're a bass clarinet legend, and none other than John Quiliano himself has referred to you as the best thing that ever happened to new music. That's a pretty incredible compliment. Um, how did you get where you are today? What was it that ignited your passion for new music? Some would say I came by it honestly. Um, I, um, I was brought up in a musical family, uh, both my parents being practicing musicians, my father was a composer and before that um, a, uh, an instrumentalist. He played oboe and English horn in the Toronto Symphony for 24 years. Um, my mother um, was a vocalist and is still teaching at almost 90 years old at the University of Toronto. She teaches vocal voice uh, full-time there um, and has had uh, a roster of, I'd say, pretty great singers. Um, international singers come by her studio um, over the years. So um, that doesn't necessarily make me come by it honestly. Let's see. Uh, 
I did play classical music. I played a lot of classical music um, in my training years. Um, I did, however, find that by the time I was at university, probably well be before that, but at, at, at university I was be, befriending a lot of composers um, who were studying composition and also outside of the university system entirely, um, people who were into more creative ways of thinking about music. And um, I found this kind of a savior to get me through the, uh, the final throes of the academic institution. So when you say more creative um, avenues of music, is that implying that you, some, you feel that new music is, is um, somehow more creative than older music or just the... Michael Norsworthy actually mentioned something similar. He, he said when he was in school, he really felt the burden of all the past performances on the classical repertoire and the new music he was able to do his own thing with. Well, uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that because we've, we, we um, as classically trained Western classical musicians, musicians um, we have a kind of a dogma about this is how you do it. When we actually don't have a lot of um, authority on that because there were no recordings made in those days. I mean, there's a lot of musicological exploration on how you actually did it then. Um, I'm, I'm not here to refute that at all or to say in any way that um, older music is less creative than new music. Um, what I was um, simply answering to was uh, in my own um, practical experience as a clarinet player that I found working with composers gave me um, a, a a path, a chemin, what's that, I, a, a way into thinking m more creatively, more about the actual music itself, and ra rather than what we were training to do was be these great clarinetists. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me, actually. And it's so, it would be truly sad, actually, to not tap that resource of the living composer and and always sort of look back. So it's great that the people are on the the forefront of that. So some of the music itself, for those who maybe haven't had a chance to listen yet, um, I checked out some of the pieces and the one you've been using for the main uh, uh, tour video. Can you explain what's going on in that piece a little bit? For um, Is that the one with the contrabass? Yeah, it's contrabass and, and there's a little bit of uh, singing through the instrument and some really primal sort of sounds. Um, well, that particular clip is um, one of my improvisations that I mm -hmm. did back in September, opening for a great little band here in Montreal. Um, and I, um, half of my life is really, or a third of my life is spent, my career is spent improvising, either solo or in group settings. And um, in this situation, it was a solo set of whatever duration, my solo sets can range between, you know, a 10 minute piece, a 15 minute piece, or a whole, you know, 40 minutes that has several pieces. And um, I actually didn't know what I was going to do before I started playing. Uh, um, in terms of length, I wanted to let that, as, as well as everything, be up to the moment. Sometimes I, ha I feel that I want to 
um, structure the set more and then there are various um, parameters that I will give myself. But in this case I really just wanted to come out there with a the contrabass clarinet and say here it is, this moment, me <laughs> now, the music I'm, I'm uncovering. And um, so I started. So you said you feel like you're uncovering the music, like almost as if you're finding it from yeah, yourself I, or from... Yeah, it feels a little like, um, um, I've used this analogy many times before, a little bit like an anteater might be. Mm -hmm. I've, I'm, I'm kind of following my nose, you know, and, and it goes in this direction and that direction. But I, one thing I do aspire to, and I don't think that I can turn it off actually, is that I'm very aware of the passage of time. And I, um, um, I need to know where I've come from at every step of the way. I don't necessarily know where I'm going, but where I've come from, from gives me the impulse and the, and the gesture for what's to come. And I, I say gesture in a very, uh, very reverent way. I feel that my improvisations are largely based on gesture. And gesture, by gesture, I mean um, um, impulses. So do you feel then, you remind me of a quote of, of a guitarist who said something like, if he had a guitar with him at that moment, he could sit down and catch a tune because they're always flying in the air and they're just meant to be sort of discovered. Um, do you feel like you're a conduit for the music or you're realizing the music or that it's somehow spiritual? I don't really know what spiritual means anyway. But in terms of what I have to say musically, I don't know. I don't know how to talk about spirituality and certainly not my own spirituality. Maybe that's a private thing, in fact. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's one thing I keep to myself. Uh, it's a very strange state of being in improvisation, as it is in interpretation, too. I feel that I have a, a part of me is just hanging there suspended, listening, watching, feeling. Part of me is playing, feeling where am I going. A part of me is recording it. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things going on that are very difficult to um, to describe because it, there's nothing else like this. Mm -hmm. I can't I can't describe to people who have never entered this world what it's like from my perspective. <laughs> I think that the best um, uh, description would be please come, please witness this, please experience this with me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, and there will probably be a billion questions answered right there. I hope so. I hope that there would be a lot of questions. Well, and people are going to have the chance to do that. You're coming to Calgary. Your next show is in New York um, <laughs> on February 4th. Um, this is, a, I think, a 10-city tour. You're seeing, just grabbing the poster here on my desk. Yeah. yeah. Brooke, you're Brooklyn. Um, in Toronto, you've already been there, but Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver, um, Edmonton, Montreal, and Brandon. 
So all these people in all these places are going to have the chance to come out um, and hear that. Um, but for a lot of them, I think, um, not to play devil's advocate here, but this type of music is going to be a little bit um, not something they've heard before, not something they're expecting. But a lot of people are expecting to be emotionally moved or to relax at a concert. How would you entice those people and wake their ear up to being able to enjoy this type of music and interaction? Um, well, let me just stop you there because I, I realize um, people expecting to be emotionally moved. That's great, actually. My aspiration is to move people, to touch people, to change people, so that when people have listened to anything I'm playing, that they'll leave kind of going, huh, that's all. Just, huh. You know, um, I don't, I will actually, I would love it if people go, wow! <laughs> or, Ugh! And those people who hate it, or who have a very negative, let's say, emotion around it, I'd love to talk to them. And not at all defensively. I want to know what is it and I want what I want there it's already touched them and there my job is done mm -hmm. negative emotion is not a negative thing in and of itself if you can figure out why it it made you feel that way um, that's great that's really, really great. I mean, I want. I was thinking about this question when you, uh, when you sent me the list of questionnaire. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you that. Okay, you're asking the question. You're playing the devil's advocate here, and I would love for you, Sean. Mm -hmm. Pretend you're one of those people. You've been to these kinds of shows. You've had that emotion where you're kind of like. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it, it reminds me of a John Cage quote. Um, he said something like, I've never heard a sound I didn't like. Yeah. And uh, I, I think actually Michael Norsworthy said that the other day. And he sort of mentioned he wasn't sure that felt like a very human reaction to, um, well, we started discussing the philosophy of John Cage at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree. I mean, if someone is really, um, if someone can experience uh, a love emotion or happiness or playfulness or anything like that for music surely some sort of um in some sense almost like a repulsion or immediate lack of understanding that puts them on edge is is it's in some ways equally important i find it extremely important uh, any emotion is is a, like a jackpot for in for for knowledge there's an arrow part quote too um as you know, he is very focused on extremely minimal, like, languid music. But he said something which I thought was rather interesting from him. He said, if 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 music can make people feel, um, and this isn't exact, but if it can make people feel um, this sense of, like, uh, he's very spiritual and uh, sort of a sense of well-being in that way, it can also, it can literally kill if, if the sound is loud enough and and focused enough. Um, and he th said that that sort of range of emotion was, he wants to stay on the, the, <laughs> the more calm side of that, but you're trying to sort of wake people up and get them off their chair and. Well, um, 
I figure if people are there in the hall with me, they're already um, interested in change. Mm -hmm. I am not Arvo part. Um, and I, I do, yes, I do enjoy the unknown. I do thrive on really um, seeking solutions in the moment. I'm a performer. Mm -hmm. What do you think the reaction to this type of music would be if you, and maybe you've tried this, I'm sorry, I, I don't know. Um, let's say went in Montreal there and, and played in a, a metro station for the public. What, what, what do you think they would say or do? Well, I, I probably wouldn't do that just because it's not, um, it's not, uh, that, that's kind of like thrusting it mm -hmm. here, change, you know, <laughs> but I think um, it would elicit some interest and excitement. I mean, Oh, sure. Especially with children. They're very open to this kind of thing. Children are the very, very best because they haven't had any kind of, um, I'm not going to use, yes, I am going to use the word brainwashing <laughs> to say this is good and this is bad. Yeah. They just react. Right? Yeah, totally. And no. actually, their reaction is a kind of proaction. Yeah. Know? And it's, it's brilliant. If you could just stick a contrabass clarinet in their mouth, then wow, look out. You well, know? I was thinking so much even about music education. Um, and when a child first starts to play, for example, a clarinet, we spend so much time, they, they, they make a sound. Oh, no, no, that's not the right sound. Make this sound. They make another sound. Oh, no, that's not the right sound. You're focusing the tone. You want a darker sound. Do you feel like in education, we should almost just let them explore those tones that they first start with? You know, I've never had a young child as a student. Oh, really? But um, judging from my older children who I teach, including mm -hmm. a 68-year-old woman, um, <laughs> I encourage all sounds. Yeah. All sounds. I feel as though I, I believe that there, again, it's a jackpot. A, 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 any sound somebody makes, music, to me, is an organization of sounds in time, in a passage of time. Even in improvisation, you're organizing the sounds that are coming out. Mm -hmm. Whether a student is improvising for me or playing something written in front of me, and there's a, there's a sound, a questionable sound, I'll like jump on it and go, yeah. wow. And, and wow, positive. What was that? And if it's something, you know, if they're playing Mozart, um, which mostly students to play won't come to me for Mozart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a sound that was wrong. Um, I, 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 let's go in there. What was wrong about it? You know, how did you do it? And we get way inside the sound. And sooner or later, they're either not, po not capable of doing it anymore, or they're just totally using it in a musical, um, musical context. Yeah. And it's fantastic. It, it's funny because I, I do teach a lot of younger kids here. And um, I find that we start off so many times kind of beating the squeaks and squawks out of them. And then later, a couple years down the road, they have to play in the altissimo register and more difficult repertoire. And they're, they're literally afraid to make those sounds. And I think it's so sad. Yeah. 
the easiest, fastest way in there is go back to the squeaks. Yeah, get back there. Get squeaking again. (laughs) So you've had numerous works composed for you. You're a composer yourself. And, um, of course, you're a skilled improviser. Um, Do you feel that you put on different hats for each activity musically? Or is everything kind of one and the same for you? I would say that it's certainly not one and the same. But I would say that I am one and the same. It's um, it, All of my activities that involve music, even listening to music, writing about music, talking to you about music, um, wandering in a park thinking about music, all of these activities are under one hat. Hmm. So it's a big hat. It's, it's a big hat, yeah. <laughs> well, it's my life. Yeah. I really I don't really do anything else. <laughs> what did I say? I was talking to somebody recently. Oh yeah. I was working with a composer uh, who wrote me a big bass clarinet solo to introduce uh an ensemble work. Like it's the beginning, it's the introduction of a sextet. Mm-hmm. And it's manic. It's 12 pages of manic writing. And um and so we I, I said let's get together. And let's go over this together um, because I want you to understand that this kind of material is, it looks fantastic. And I would love to take this on as, as some of my solo repertoire, never mind the, the sextet that it precedes. Um, but this is going to take me like the same amount of study that Fernie Hell takes me. Look mm-hmm. at this and let's look at it together and just see what we can do about it. And, um, you know, after an hour and a half or two hours with her, she was just going like, you know, wow, I, I, I need to go back to the drawing board, but I can't go back to the drawing board. I want to keep my stuff. I wanted her to keep the stuff because it's really great. Um, but we needed to, to figure out a, a practical solution to that. And in, the, in this period of time, I was just realizing and said to her, you know, it's all I do. I just work. Yeah. It's kind of boring. And sooner or later, it's gonna it's gonna change. Yes, I keep saying <laughs> it's gonna change. I'm gonna have I'm gonna do other things. But you know what the thing is, is that I don't feel like I just work. It feels like you know, making supper is as much about constructing a program and and preparing psychically for the virtuosity of excess tour. You know, everything kind of feeds into everything. I know mm-hmm. it sounds kind of, uh, well, maybe that's spiritual, but uh, I, I don't really know how to separate all of my activities. So do you feel then that your work is almost play in a sense for you, or is it is it kind of both cycling into one another? Like there's got to be sort of a creative um, lightheartedness to, to some of this stuff. Well, it's all... Oh no, I shouldn't say it's all lighthearted, but it is all play. Mm-hmm. And play is, well, m- m- more often than not conceived as lighthearted. And it's true, there's a huge amount of my life that is lighthearted. And there's a huge amount of my life that is very deeply engaged. Mm-hmm. Can I say deeply engaged in lightheartedness? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't mean that in, a, in any way a derogatory term. 
I yeah. just meant that in able to sort of explore these things with these composers. And, you know, that was really my next question is, what's it like interpreting music knowing that um, it was written with specifically you in mind? Very few people get the chance to to experience that. And I'm wondering if it brings back sort of the, the same weight that people feel when interpreting older music as far as the, the versions that have been done before them and sort of adhering to the, the I hate to say this, but dogma of the age maybe. Um, or is it kind of freeing because you can interact and be creative with the composer at the same time? Well, there's various um, ways of working with composers. My mm -hmm. preferred way is along the way, so that we are in collaboration, in true collaboration. One of the pieces on the program by Paul Steenhusen, uh, Library on Fire, was conceived and processed exactly like that. We, I sent him a bunch of improvisations, he sent me a bunch of drawings, um, and we just unraveled this piece together, really together. We Skyped it, we recorded it, we tried different all kinds of things. And like I was sitting there in the summertime pl playing these things, trying to play back my improvisations. That was wild. That was really strange. And his transcriptions <laughs> of the sounds that I was making. It was very, very difficult to learn how to read what I improvise. It's interesting. Yeah, it was a fascinating process. Other um, processes with composers is they give me the piece, but they've already, hmm, yes, they've already heard what I do. That's why they've decided to write for me. Hmm. Um, and um, it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege to have that weight of getting it right <laughs> and what is right, um, of having the opportunity to discuss with them, hmm, is it, you've written this, and this is what that sounds like, but if I do this like this, what do you think of that? Sometimes a composer will say, oh yes, but at other times a composer will say, well no, and they'll go really into detail about why not, and it's fascinating. So it sounds like the, the improvisational process then is almost sort of blending with the, the composer's energies. Um, how does it work then when you when you write yourself, or do you feel like you're transcribing improvisations, or or working the other way? Or I have done that. I have I have transcribed my improvisations and then developed them from there. A lot of full time composers, people who only write music, don't play, also um, have suggested to me do not write with the clarinet in front of you. But I don't really know how to do that off the top. And I would suggest that, um, or propose that, the idea that uh, composers are improvisers too. Mm -hmm. You know, they are improvising in their mind perhaps before they set something on paper. But I, I find that very hard to understand. Um, they should not have the clarinet with you when you improvise. That seems, or sorry, when you compose, that, that would seem backwards well, to me. Well, I understand it to a point mm -hmm. um, because what happens is that then I just like say, say okay, I improvise, I transcribe something that I liked from that, I write it down, and then what? Rather than look at it and imagine 
where to, to move it in time, mm-hmm. where to develop it to. If I take the clarinet and just work it like that, it's really easy. It's really easy to improvise on an idea. I, I hope I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not contradicting myself. Is it easy to improvise on an idea, on my own ideas? Well, that's what I'm doing, though, when I'm comp- composing, is I'm improvising on ideas. And that's what I'm doing when I'm improvising. Yeah, it's almost like a I'm circle. Composing. Which came first? I'm composing. And uh, <laughs> that was what my point. Please remember your question on this. But... Um, is that I think there is a very, very vague line between composition and improvisation. I was reading last night, what is the difference? And some, somebody wrote, well, composition is written and improvisation is not. Mm-hmm. But I would say for the most part of the world, except for maybe Western classical music, most music is not written down. And yeah. Compositions are not written down. It's a very small part of the world who write their music. I find what you're saying interesting because for me, what I've been kind of doing is sort of in, in, in jazz or even just within classical pieces, but I'm, I'm sort of held in by a key signature or a, a, a tonality or, you know, it, it can be loosely based on that. But the kind of work you're doing, it, it seems to start more without those things in mind. So not, I'm not implying they're not, you're not thinking about them, but I'm just wondering what, what you are thinking about to, to come up with those sounds and, and if you're not based on a key signature or, or, or being defined by it. You know, without uh, sounding flaky, mm-hmm. um, I think the word is thinking. <laughs> I'm actually not thinking the way one has to think about a tonality, a key, or a rhythm. So you're thinking in a different way, or you're literally trying not to think? Uh, like, are you trying to just sort of have a nice blank state, almost in a meditative way, or...? Um, I, I, again, it's very, very difficult to describe the state of mind I get into when I'm improvising. But I would say that I'm trying to cut out thoughts. I'm trying to cut out conscious thinking, because very quickly... I will censor myself. Oh and yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. There's times where I was about to play something and I'm like, ooh, might be a wrong note. What are people going to say? Well, exactly. And... Uh, so that's not fun. And that's no. not very interesting to listen to, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I do practice improvising at home. Um, and mostly... That work is about concentration. <laughs> I've just finished saying you don't. I try not to think. No, but I can I, understand that though. You're you're sort of because thoughts can be intrusive. Um, and if you're only if you're kind of trying to channel only the thoughts that you want and to not judge those thoughts and let them be, that makes that makes sense to me. What I was trying to say about I'm trying not to think. What I am doing, let's put it in a positive light, (laughs) is that I'm listening. Mm. And when you're listening, you can't be... uh, Okay, this is a big big statement here. If if I am listening really deeply, I'm not thinking. I'm listening. That's all. I'm just listening. The fact that I've got a clarinet in my mouth, or I'm singing... 
or both is doesn't denote the fact that I'm thinking, I'm listening, not thinking. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't deny the fact that I'm listening. You're just listening to yourself. And what's yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. So you you've been playing on many many recordings. How does this kind of music um work in the studio? Can you give some insight into your studio career and maybe share a memorable moment or realization or you know, I thought about this question also, Sean, because um, the unfortunate truth of the matter is I actually don't like the studio. Mm. <laughs> I, 60 records later. <laughs> you know, well, most of those records are live recordings. Yeah. And I feel that recordings are good for one thing, mm -hmm. and that is for an archival document. You know, yeah, great, if I can sell a couple off stage, yay. We don't make our living off the sales, even if we print a thousand and sell them. Yeah. You know, it's not like the rock industry. This this is not this is not really um, it's not market driven. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got tons of recordings, but um, it, they, they, most of them were not done in a studio. Some of my solo, like the recent one, uh, was done in a studio, and I don't have any fond memories of it really <laughs> because I actually don't like the studio I don't like microphones in front of me you know I, I don't like the the whole thing bugs me about a studio well in some ways that that makes sense because for someone who's trying to improvise and share something in the moment and make the time special um, laying that down and, and set, setting it in stone almost might be kind of counterintuitive well you know? it, that's what you say that's what um, you, your last statement st setting in stone and I would say even with repertoire written music that is set in stone every time I play the Fernie Howe or the Barrett or any of this music that I'm playing on the XS tour or anywhere in my repertoire I try always to find something new in it. And that will always mean that it will be different, even tiny things, sometimes large things. And sometimes I really mess up because I'm going for something. I don't know if I can do it, but I'm mm -hmm. gonna go for it. And it, yeah, that's great in a studio because you just erase, you know, but um, even in a studio, that's, maybe even harder to do is to capture that feeling, that essence of performance, a live performance, where you're, some things are not going to be a thousand percent correct. And, but you've got the energy behind it that, that will make the piece work if, if you can. The studio, um, I still try to go for that. I still, still try to play as though I'm performing for an audience, mm -hmm. not for those microphones in a dead room with nobody. <laughs> you yeah. know, one of my first solo albums, I did invite an audience just so that I had somebody to play to. That's fascinating. Yeah. And at the end of this tour, I am planning on going into a studio, one last uh, filming of uh, the program, The Virtuosity of Excess. 
Um, and I will invite an audience from Quebec to, to come into the studio, so just so that it's a bit more realistic. It is not a studio recording, except, yes, that was the environment. That's so interesting to me. Um, you've done some recordings, though, that, that have a lot of layered um, clarinet sounds in them. That's something that obviously is a little harder to do live. You don't feel that kind of expands the palette? It's, it still feels limiting? That's the thing that, it, that recording is great for, mm. in fact. And the one album that you maybe are referring to is a, an album called Three. Yes. Yeah. That was um, um, three evenings of live performances, three different trios uh, it, that I had in Montreal at the time. We went into a bar and recorded for three nights, you know, glasses clinking, etc. All that is in there. And... Quite frankly, the recording, as great as it was, Bernard Grenon uh, was a great engineer, you can't cut out a lot of those sounds. It's just impossible. And I didn't want to in the end. But it did change the listening quality of the music for me. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I liked it. I... So I went to, and so I thought, okay, this is a recording. I'm not, I'm not. Uh, I'm not denying that. This is going to be a recording. Let's use the techniques involved in a recording studio. Let's go to crazy in this. And yes, so we did. I got the genius, Michel F. Cote from Montreal, to, um, to just go crazy on looping and echoing and all kinds of effects that I wouldn't have any idea how to do myself in a studio, and certainly not live. Uh, I have no interest in doing that live. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was exactly, that was an example of using the studio for what it's great for. So that recording then was recorded live and then sort of post-produced to what it is. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So let's dive right in and talk about your tour. You're going to 10 cities and your website says you're playing a spectacle of solo compositions for bass clarinet and contrabass clarinet. The tour is called The Virtuosity of Excess. This sure sounds like a very unique thing to do. And it's something that no clarinet player should really miss. Um, what more could you add to this exciting description? Well, maybe uh, no clarinet player should miss, but I would encourage also all kinds of musicians to come, and even non-musicians, because I feel that this is um, yes, a spectacle. In French, we say spectacle. It's a, it's a <laughs> performance of... Um, of a, well, it's like a, an exploration. It is a voyage exploring the, the th limits and thresholds of all kinds of things, including the clarinet, the bass clarinet and the contrabass clarinet, but also our own notions of what is music, what is sound, what is time, what is energy. So, yeah, I think... The, the contrabass clarinet especially, that's a very unique instrument to, to take around on tour. Um, that might almost be perceived as excessive to some people, so much to carry. <laughs> um, but what, do you want to define your use of the word excess as it pertains to this tour? Uh, the, the definition of excess, huh? I, um, I, I've played a lot with that word because um, I, sometimes I get sick of my mind and thinking about, wow, that excess, beauty beauty of excess. Uh, there's so much beauty in excess. 
Um, then I started playing with the word, wow, there's so much excess. There's ex so many things. We have exuberance, excitement, exhilarating, extra. Ex, ex is, is like an, uh, a preface that is so profound and fecund <laughs> that um, um, it got me excited, not just the prefix. The music of the virtuosity of excess, this excess tour, is um, exceptional. Well, there we go again. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's, there, it's a combination of compositions that one would rarely, if ever, imagine hearing on stage. What do you think makes it such an enticing instrument for, for this kind of music? It's a very good question because I, I think on, on the one hand I would say that um, the clarinet also has an extraordinary palette of sounds or I, one should say a clarinetist might have <laughs> mm -hmm. a palette of sounds, the access, accessible to them. Accessible. <laughs> accessible, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the bass clarinet is, I, I can't even say is that much more than the clarinet or the contrabass is even that much more than the bass clarinet. Um, but they're, they're extremely rich in sound possibilities. Mm -hmm. What is, um, what's, what the exploration, the development, what the work he is here, what the play is here is refining those sounds exploring those sounds, discovering new sounds, and, and learning how to control them, getting these crazy, crazy sounds. Yes, you say animalistic. And, and making them part of your vocabulary so that you actually can say something with them and not just go, whoa, this is what a contrabass clarinet can do. <laughs> but actually make some music with them. And the composers, and as I improvise, um, we are all working towards using that vocabulary not just as a show, not just as a virtuosity, mm -hmm. but as a tool to express the music. The sounds of the bass clarinet are still being discovered. Sounds, do you feel that you're discovering those sounds in a lot of the performance that you do? Um, I'm still trying to discover new sounds, but I have to admit that for instance, the Fernie Howe, mm -hmm. um, there's very little sounds with which he uses in his vocabulary for a time and motion study for bass clarinet. There are very few sounds, if any, that are have been recently discovered. Well, he wrote it 40 years ago, this piece. Um, but even if he was writing that music today, I suspect that he wouldn't be looking to discover new sounds. He's using a palette of sounds that he knew at the time, and he's just going with it. He's writing, he wrote this incredible piece um, that isn't just about the sound. Do you think we'd be able to um, play any samples of these pieces on the air just so people could get a sense of what we're talking about? Yeah, well, you could put anything on for me. I don't okay, because I've got this... I'm holding this bridge CD in my hand here. Listen to the three bridges. 
because there might be stuff that you have in mind there that you're thinking about with this conversation that might exemplify it. Yeah. You know, I, I actually really like those bridges. Um, yeah. I, at the past couple of days, I've been at the gym listening to your, your records, actually, which is it's a little weird to work out to, actually. So bizarre. Yeah, maybe. I definitely was the only person there. <laughs> maybe the only person ever. Um, but, yeah, the bridge recordings are really interesting. I, I like them a lot. What went into the, the, the thought with those? Um, I don't know. I don't know if there was thought. Are they? Were, they're completely free improvisations. Yeah, there were moments in, um, in the recording sessions that I was doing with the repertoire. That I just wanted to go. Okay, let's, uh, give me, give me, let me, let me play something. That's amazing. So you all this repertoire on here, and then. The bridge pieces, which um, actually became, I guess, the title track in a way. You, well, you literally feel they were bridges between the, the other pieces you were recording in the session? or The idea of bridge for me anyway, uh, aside from myself having a fetish about bridges mm -hmm. and their architectural design, I just love them, um, are kind of metaphors for me of my life that I of all the of all of my activity all of my activities are bridged mm -hmm. by me I guess but that the bridges themselves become a, an entity unto themselves okay I'll, I'll put it in another way you have one bit of land and you have another bit of land and you connect them with a bridge. Both bits of land are entities and the bridge itself is an entity. But the three things together becomes another entity. Hmm. That that entity, or all of those entities, are uh, a metaphor of my music. So the bridge is traveling between two places but it's still a place in itself. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they're, you know, they're inspired by, they're influenced by, I can't cut out any of that. It's, it, I'm touching both sides. I'm touching everything I've ever done. I'm not going to, to, I, I want to show that. And what does it, what does it look like? This is what it looks like right now, today, in this moment. I often do that in a solo concert. Um is a, a, of repertoire is that I will improvise at the end a kind of a synopsis of what just happened. It's kind of for myself but I really feel it I'm giving it out to the audience as a okay get rid of the music stand get rid of all past ideas here we are all now together right now in this moment listen. Do you feel that removing the music stand somehow breaks down a barrier between you and the audience? No. No, although I, I, you know, I wish I didn't have to have a music stand, but I can't play this music from heart yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of bridge, I'm excited to say that um, right now I'm holding a signed copy of this in my hand. Um, this will be the giveaway for this week on the podcast. Is there anything you'd like to say to the person who wins this record? Uh, enjoy. Have fun with it. Play bridge. Use it at the gym. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> Work out. <laughs>
Um, no, it was. I have to say that it was a big pleasure putting that together. It is my last audio recording uh, that I made in a studio, and um, before the next one, uh, which will be sometime in the fall, uh, I'm going into the studio with this excess tour, the, the program from the excess tour, and uh, I, no, I bridge. Bridge is a. I love it. <laughs> I love the music on it. So you're really fond of this work, but it's funny because I recall you saying that you felt the studio was a little bit confining, but this one you managed to open up more? Or? Well, as, as I just said, I love the music on it. So it's the music itself that, interesting. What else is there? Yeah. yeah. So it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today, Lori. I think you have some really amazing insights into new music and improvisation. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to add that you feel we didn't touch on? I think it would be really important to also add that, uh, for, uh, yes, this this concert is uh, really important for clarinet players and musicians exploring new paths. Mm -hmm. But I would also say, and that includes <laughs> composers. Uh, composers oh. are musicians, right? I think that. that um, and it's funny, actually, with um, this kind of concert, more often composers come than performers, mm -hmm. unless clarinet players. But um, I just think I, I think that the uh, the program has a, has something in it for a lot of people. And if it's not up to, um, and if it's not everybody's cup of tea, I want to hear about that too. <laughs> <laughs> So listeners can find you online on your website, your YouTube channel. Have you got a Facebook page or anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, I do actually. The Facebook page for the Virtuosity of Excess Tour is up and running and looking for you all to befriend it because <laughs> um, that's the way the word gets out, obviously. So it's called uh, the Virtuosity of Excess Tour, Lori Friedman. And it would be fantastic if you went there. I've, it's been, um, I think it's been about a week since I posted last, and I am, I've been a bit under the weather, and um, now I'm coming up. So look out. Please uh, go to that Facebook page. It would be fantastic. And I will definitely be sharing um, the link to the Virtuosity of Excess Tour on the website Fantastic. Oh, sorry, the Facebook page as well, and we can have that there. Um, is there a uh, people can purchase your recordings directly from you, um, Amazon? Uh, where else can they find your material? You know, this is really a bad uh, situation. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll say I did find some. I know this is not the, the ideal way for artists, and I'm, I feel almost badly, but. I did find some on Spotify, so you can find it there. Um, there iTunes. Um, Actuel CD, I think, also has sells most of them. Yeah, I would strongly encourage people to support purchasing the physical discs, for for sure. Um, and, yeah, and, and I'll put some links to some of these on the website as well. Yeah, and certainly at my concerts, uh, I'll be selling off stage uh, and trying to get rid of as much paraphernalia as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Are you selling anything in additional to the CDs, like um, DVDs, videos? Actually not. I'm oh, only okay. traveling. I have so much to travel with, Sean. Yeah, I know. I can't imagine. All... <laughs> <laughs> I, and I have a tour manager also who is traveling with me, but it's still, 
uh, I, I can't take anything else. Um, I did have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, T-shirt made, um, but only six T-shirts um, of the Virtuosity of Excess Tour with all the dates. And on the back, it says, Ask the Tour Manager. <laughs> I saw that actually on the yeah. on the Facebook page there. And, I'm, I, you know, it, they're not meant for selling. Mm-hmm. But I'm having I'm a bit hard-pressed to figure out, well, who gets these? You yeah. Know? I gave it to... The person who designed the uh, the logo, the, virtu- the, the Virtuosity of Excess, which is so beautiful. Becky Kanak is her name, and she, I just thought she did a fantastic job. Um, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know who to give five other. Well, the tour manager gets one, and her the back of her T-shirt says "Tour Manager." <laughs> but uh, well, that's how people find. So all the other ones say ask the tour manager and then she's the one who gets asked. <laughs> That's right, because I don't want to field any any of those questions. That's good planning on your part. Yeah, well. For sure. Great. Well, I could think of a way to get rid of at least one more shirt for you if you need, so just keep me posted. Sean, <laughs> you got it. What's that? You got it. We could give one away on here as well? Oh, I was thinking for you. Oh, yeah, I'd love one for myself. I'm just... <laughs> Yeah, well, I can think of a way to get rid of two then for you if you want. So just just let me know. We'll talk when you're in Calgary here Okay. about that. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Laurie. And I, I can't wait to watch your concerts in Calgary. And I, I'm envious of the guests who get to come all over the, the continent. So well, it's been for- great talking with you. And uh, I hope this reaches um, interested ears. Oh, I'm sure it will. Hmm. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Bye, Sean. If you find that you're enjoying the podcast, please see the website at clarineat.com. There you'll find the store, the subscription links for iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, etc., and also the social media pages. And if you're interested in winning the product mentioned on the podcast, that's where you have to go and make sure that you like um, at least one of those pages. You can have up to five chances to win. Today, Lori had contacted me and mentioned something she sort of thought of after the interview regarding teaching and interpreting music, and I just wanted to quickly include that here. It was too valuable to not not include um, in today's podcast. So I'll let her have the last word, and I look forward to seeing you next week. I don't really have a, a methodology, um, because each musician who comes to me has very potentially different um, aspects and issues to address and I like to stay personal with those uh, aspects Um, but there does seem to be one very basic theme that seems to run through my lessons my teachings and it comes back to me from uh, comments of students um, that whatever the most important thing I believe is that one be themselves in the music. It's so important to identify one's own personality in music, but not not just in music, generally, you know, in life. And to find that personality and run with that and play with that and live that in the music. If you're not yourself in that music, I'm afraid of um, this uh, you, the student, um, joining the masses of very unhappy musicians in the Western world, and um, that would be a really big loss. 
So uh, a lot of my uh, time spent uh, with students is trying to figure out um, what is the issue and showing different approaches to to solving those issues but never saying this is what you need to do. I really insist on the student discovering for themselves what is best and what is most efficient. They're the only people who can help themselves. My job, I feel, as a teacher is really to share my experience and um, to impart on a very huge gift that I had been given, which is to learn and to love learning and to learn how to learn.